for you to open your Bibles tonight, if you would please, to Ephesians chapter 4. And this evening we're studying in a very practical part of Ephesians because we're talking about the application of our salvation to every part of our Christian lives. And if your salvation does not affect every part of your life, then you really don't have the salvation that the Bible is speaking of. Today, in soul-winning efforts, it seems like there's very little emphasis that's put on this radical change that takes place in a person's heart when he's saved. And many of the soul-winners are are just so anxious to count their converts that they're really unconcerned about whether a change has actually occurred. But people who are saved, folks, are different. They're different from the world. A change has taken place, and we're not going to see it in any better place than what we read right here in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and these text verses that we want to study tonight. Now, this evening, we're going to back up and read a few verses that precede the text for the sermon in order for us to get the full impact and the, and the uh, sense of the passage that we're reading. So let's go back to verse number 17 Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 17. If you'd stand with me, please. We're going to read down to verse number 21. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, for what we learn in the book of Ephesians. Lord, we ask you tonight that you would comfort hearts and so many troubles that have come upon us this week. I just pray, Lord, that you might speak to to each one and help us, Lord, to look to you and to think about this great salvation that we have in Christ. And, Lord, what a change, what a great difference it's made in our hearts. We'll just give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In last week's lesson, uh, we saw how Paul described the, the life of the Ephesian Christians before they came to know Christ. And as we were studying these verses in number four, we saw how that that was just very reminiscent of what Paul had already told us in the second chapter. In that chapter, he spoke about the Ephesians before they came to know the Lord. and And he said that they were lost and he said that they were dead in trespasses and sin and they were children of wrath. Then he goes down to verse number 12 in that second chapter. And he also says that these people were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. He said they were without hope and without God in the world. And that was a very dismal and bleak picture that he was giving these people. A man without Christ is not somebody who possesses some goodness. He's not a person who has some spiritual life and a person who may have hopes of recovering some spirituality that he's lost. If only he could just hear a little bit of the gospel message, then he could muster up some sort of sensibility, of faith within himself, and then he could trust in Christ. That's not the picture that we have in Scripture. The picture is of a person who's hopeless, there's destruction, and there's only one way for things to be different, and that's for God to reach down and pull us out of those depths of depravity and change our lives completely. But unfortunately, that's not what you hear preached very much anymore. Today, the message of salvation is that God is dangling a carrot out in front of us, and if we so choose that we can reach out or decide to get that carrot from God... 
And the picture that the preachers give us today and the, the, the picture that they paint is that salvation is a gift, but God doesn't help you to secure that gift or God doesn't secure it for you. And so they say that this gift has to be received and the reception of that gift is totally up to you. That's totally your choice as if you have the ability to actually receive it. Well, folks, that's man's picture. That's not God's picture at all. Now, the Bible certainly does teach us that salvation is the gift of God, but it also teaches us that God goes to the extra effort. God does everything that's necessary to ensure and enable you to receive that gift. I mean, the Scriptures say that even our faith is a gift of God, and we will not believe unless God miraculously intervenes and causes us to believe. Now, when Paul says in verse number 18 that the Gentiles have their understanding darkened, he means that in the same sense as he speaks in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And there in that chapter he says that the devil has blinded the eyes of those who would believe lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine into them. And the plain sense of Scripture is that man cannot lift those blinders. There's nothing that man can do to see. Only God can enable us to see. So that's very important for us to understand as we look at these scriptures tonight because that makes all the difference in the world in how you view these verses. And Paul is making a point here that God has not done this for the other Gentiles. You remember that in verse number 17? We talked about it last week. He said that ye walk not as other Gentiles walk. And the difference between these other Gentiles and the Gentiles that we're going to read about tonight is God has made a difference in them. Now, Paul makes a very stunning statement in verse number 20 that shows a stark contrast between those that are in verse, uh, verse number, or following verse number 20. But he says in verse, uh, or I said, uh, this the stark contrast in verse 20, it's a difference between what we see in verse 17 is what I should say. And he says here in verse 20, but ye have not so learned Christ. And there you see that Paul puts that big but back in there again. And whenever Paul says but, those things are very important. Because back in the second chapter, after he'd finished telling the Ephesians about their helpless condition, how they were dead in trespass and sin, and and, as he said, they were children of wrath, he came to verse number 4 in that second chapter. And in verses 4 and 5, he says, But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we are dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. And that's God's operation. Quickening to life from a dead condition, that's absolutely necessary before a person could put put their faith in Christ. Now, some say, well, if that's true, then if a man has to be quickened to life before he can believe, does that mean that faith is not operative in his salvation? It doesn't mean that at all. Uh, It means that this is all one operation. God brings the person to life in order to exercise that necessary faith, and you're not going to have one without the other. And I'm afraid that that is exactly what's missing in our Baptist preaching today. I mean, these verses in Ephesians will never make good sense to us unless you see the radical change in verse number 3 in chapter 2 to verses 4 and 5. And that same radical change is in verse number 20 in chapter 4 from what happens in verse number 17. Now, most Baptist preachers, though, I'm afraid, can't make that connection between those two things, and they simply cannot grasp this, that salvation cannot merely be a simple response of faith. It can't be that. It has to have special Holy Spirit intervention before a person's heart can ever be changed. Now, these verses are also proof to us that 
the intervention that God makes in people's lives is not the same in all people, or else every person who ever hears the gospel would, would, would believe that gospel. So what makes the difference between the other Gentiles in verse number 17 and the Gentiles in verse number 20? Well, there's only one thing that can make the difference, and that is this special operation of the Spirit of God. It hasn't been given to those other Gentiles. Well, my purpose tonight is really not to give you another exposition of God's particular grace and redemption, but you just can't miss this as you read the book of Ephesians, and you don't understand Ephesians. You can't unless you see that picture that Paul gives us in this fourth chapter. But I want to go on tonight, and I want to discuss particularly and specifically what Paul is talking about in verses 20 and 21. He says, But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is, in Jesus. But ye have not so learned Christ. Now, I want you to notice again the word but. Because the word but indicates, first of all, the contrast of Christianity. But is a word of contrast. What they are now is not what they were before. Salvation changes people so that there's a a, a difference in what a person is before he knows Christ and what he is afterward. Now, if you're of the mindset of many Baptists today that that, uh, salvation comes from a seed of faith that's already been implanted of man, and if you're of the persuasion that the fall of man has not so radically altered him that it's impossible for a man to come to Christ, that he has no ability to do so, then you're never going to see the full reason for the contrast that I'm speaking here. Now, that's why people can believe that a soul winner goes out. He gives a three-point presentation. He has somebody pray a prayer and sign a card and automatically pronounces them saved. And they say a change is not really necessary. And that's the fallacy of many people. It's the fallacy of the, of the sword of the Lord crowd who believes that repentance from, from uh, all sin is not necessary for salvation. Now, they say repentance from unbelief. That's really all you have to have, not repentance from all of your sins. And folks, I would tell you that it is impossible to repent of the sin of unbelief without repenting and knowing that Christ delivers from all of our sins. And a belief in in repentance from unbelief will of necessity include repentance from all of our sins. But the problem is when you tell those soul winners those things, that's the same thing as saying to them, your numbers are not accurate. The ones that you claim are saved and they show no difference in their lives, they produce no fruit in their lives, they're not really Christians. Now, one writer very ably said, the idea promoted by some who claim to be evangelicals that a Christian does not have to give up anything or change anything when he becomes a Christian is nothing less than diabolical. I want you to notice the use of that word evangelical because that's a term that's really lost its original meaning. But the word evangelical means gospel preaching. To be evangelical means that you preach the gospel. And unfortunately, there are some in their gospel preaching who have forgotten what Jesus said and what John the Baptist said and what the apostles said when they talk about repentance from sin. Because repentance always produces a change in lifestyle and behavior. And if you don't preach that a person is going to have that change once he's been saved, then you're not preaching the gospel of the New Testament. Now, let me make two other points, or two points about this contrast between other Gentiles and the Ephesian Christians. Now, first of all, this contrast is not self-improvement. It's not self-improvement. In other words, this is not natural ability. How and when 
that a person begins to do righteous acts is something that has puzzled and uh, people have misunderstood since the beginning of time. How, how and when do you do religious acts? Well, you know, when Adam sinned, his first thought was one of self-improvement. When he sinned and he realized that he was naked, the first thing that Adam tried to do was improve upon that nakedness by sewing fig leaves together. And he thought that he could cover his nakedness and he would be righteous in the eyes of God by doing that. And that would cover the sin that he had committed. And since that time, all religions have become fig leaf religions. I mean, all religions except sovereign grace Christianity have become fig leaf religions. Now, if you ask just about anybody, how can you go to heaven? How do people start out? Self-improvement projects. They start talking about something that I have to give up. They speak about how I have to clean up my habits. I have to have a different lifestyle. And if I change those things, then I'll become righteous with God. Well, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 23 because Jesus addresses this. And uh, the Pharisees of Jesus' time were the very worst for believing in self-improvement projects. They dealt with the outside of the man and they really never worried about the inside and cleaning up the inside of the man. They just wanted to make the outward appearance acceptable. So, so Jesus addresses this in Matthew 23, starting in verse number 25. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that was within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. And so Jesus is telling the people here that an inward change has to take place before there could ever be improvement on the outside. And the inward change, quite frankly, folks, is not for man to produce. Man cannot produce the inward change. It comes from an entirely radical process so that the Word of God calls it nothing less, the transformation, nothing less than a new birth. It's completely different. It's being born again. Martin Luther finally figured that out in the 16th century. He began to preach that man is justified by faith alone. And Martin Luther came to the conclusion that a man could never be justified. He could never be right with God by anything that he did. It's God's process. And you may remember that Martin Luther kicked off the the Protestant Reformation. And what was it that the Protestants were protesting against? They were protesting against Roman Catholicism. And Roman Catholicism still today, without reservation, teaches that people are not justified by faith alone that they also have to include those fig leaves that were sewed together in the Garden of Eden. Now, do you know what that tells us? It tells us that when Adam fell, when Adam sinned against God, he didn't come up with God's solution. He tried to do something else. So Adam took the wrong path to become righteous with God, and the reason that he did so is because he was fallen. It was because he was now darkened spiritually. Now, think about it for just a moment. Adam was closer in proximity to God than any of us have ever been. And yet Adam, having been in the presence of God, still came to the wrong conclusion about righteousness, and he started sewing those fig leaves together. Now you tell me, how would it be possible for a person today who 
is not nearly as close as Adam was to God. Not only does he have original sin to deal with, but he has all these thousands of years of practical sin to deal with. How is he ever going to come to right conclusions about God? He'll never do that on his own. If Adam couldn't, then certainly we can't come to those conclusions correctly. So it can't happen. Nobody could ever be saved by reforming themselves. So it's not self-improvement. But next we see that it is total separation. You see, what happens when a person is saved, he's dragged out of that sinful condition, and he's separated from what he was before, and God does something different with him. Now, the psalmist says in Psalm 40, He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it, and shall fear, and shall trust in the Lord." Now, folks, if that change has not taken place in your life, then you have no claim to salvation. And I hate to see this, say this, but there are, there are many folks that are holding out hope for family members and holding out hope for relatives and friends who at one time made a profession of faith, but they never showed any evidence of that in their lives. The Scriptures tell us that there will be evidence there. Now, those who walk out of the way of the faith prove that they never were the children of God. And this is what John says in 1 John chapter 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. One of the greatest examples that we have of, uh, of separation in the Bible is when Israel came out of Egypt. Egypt is a type of sin, and God wanted to set his people free from Egypt, and Israel could never have been established as a nation until they got out of the land of Egypt. Now, you remember that when the people wanted to go, that Pharaoh sought a compromise with Moses. And he said to Moses, now, I'm going to let you do this. I'm going to let you worship God in the land. And Moses would not accept that compromise. Moses said, no, we're not going to worship God in the land. We're going to go into the wilderness to worship. So Pharaoh came up with another compromise, and he said, well, okay, I'm going to let you go into the wilderness to worship, but I don't want you to go very far. In other words, I want you to stay within reach here. But Moses wasn't up for that either, and that's not what God intended. God intended for Israel to be totally separated from Egypt, and God demands the very same thing of people who are saved to be totally separated from the world. You can't be part in the world and part out of the world. A saved, born-again believer in Jesus Christ has been separated from the things of this world. And this is why Paul says, don't walk as other Gentiles walk. And that's why he says, but ye have not so learned Christ. This is not what you've learned to do. Now you know better. You're to be something else. You know, sometimes it's amazing how that modern Christianity and, and the methods that they use to try to, to win people. I mean, the method to use to win people today is not separation. We don't try separation. It's integration. And people think that the very best thing that you can do to win someone to the Lord is to get down to the level of that lost, unspiritual man. I mean, we can't relate to sinners until we get down on their level. And so we, we engage and let's mix up with the world. And that's how we're going to win people to Christ. So what we'll do, we'll provide a place for the community to come and worship. And they can have their style of music. They can have what they want. Let's provide a place where they can dress like they're going to the beach for a party. Let, let's give them movies and dramas. And let's appeal to their sensual appetites. And if we do that, then we'll convince people that they w- want to become Christians. And they'll want to become Christians. 
Well, the question is, how could you ever convince a person to become a Christian by feeding him the same old diet that he's always had? You can't bring the world into the church and make, make Christians out of people. That has to be separate. Now, here's the truth of the matter, folks. Most people do expect for Christians to be different. They really do expect that Christian people are going to be different from them. And, they, and the complaint or the argument they make against Christianity is not that we're different. Their complaint is that we claim to be different, but we're not. We're not really any different at all. And so they are expecting something different. Now, here is the whole root cause why some churches will implement rock music while they bring in their smoke machines and their comedic routines and their laser light shows and their clowns and, and all the stuff that they do. They don't believe that the gospel works. They just simply do not believe. And when you get right down to it, they don't believe that the Bible's method of simply preaching the Word of God is going to work. And so they substitute all of these other things and they bring people into the church and people aren't saved. All they're doing is Christianizing the lost. They're clothing people with fig leaves. And that's what religion does. Well, the picture of Christianity is far different from that. Salvation makes a change in you. There's a contrast in true Christianity and the lifestyle of the rotten and the foolish. Paul says, but ye have not so learned Christ. Now, he goes on, he says Christ does something different. So we notice, secondly, the call of Christ. Next is the call of Christ. Now, this is very important for us to understand. Verse number 21 says, If so be that ye have heard him. Now, I want you to notice the word heard there because that's the call. And have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, what does it take to really learn Christ? Well, you're not going to find out Christ by natural means. You can turn on the television and you can watch TV and you can find out what happens when people try to find out Christ by natural means. Turn on the History Channel sometime. And you watch that, you know what they do? They try every conceivable method they can to refute what the Bible has to say about Jesus when they're trying to find out who the real Jesus is. So you're not going to find out by that natural means. You're not going to find out uh, by watching TV and you're not going to find out by watching the movies. Mel Gibson, you know, a, a couple of years ago, tried to connect us with the real Christ and the passion of the Christ. You know what he succeeded in doing? Giving us a Roman Catholic view of the stations of the cross. We didn't learn anything really about Christ there. You're not going to find Christ in books. And you know why? Because the authors of books cannot reveal Christ to you. And Paul says that you're sitting there reading in the dark anyway. How in the world are you going to ever stand, understand Christ? The only way that you'll ever find out Christ is when the Spirit opens him up. When the Holy Spirit issues the call of Christ, that's when you begin to understand Christ. So here's what happens. First, when you see Christ or you hear the call of Christ, there comes an honest evaluation of self. When this call comes, a person for the very first time begins to question his life. See, people without Christ, they really don't think very much about this. They don't think about eternity. They don't think about what's going to happen to their soul. And if they do, I mean, their, their thoughts are skewed by those fig leaf religions. And so they're convinced that, yes, well, okay, I do need to be righteous with God. And so the thing to do to be righteous is live up to a standard that I've made for myself. Not God's standard, but I'm going to live up to a standard that I think will make me righteous with God. But a person who hears this call of Christ, he begins to wonder about life after death. How long is life? 
What's the value of life? What will happen to me when I die? And as he begins to think about those questions, he realizes for the first time he never had the answers. He's been living all of his life on assumptions. He thought that things would work out all right. You know, lots of people have that kind of religion. It all works out in the end, and that's what they believe, and that's what they think. They're going to come down to the end of their life, and it's going to work out well after all. But that's not true. You know, I'm reminded of the rich man who came to Jesus at night, and he asked him, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the first thing that Jesus said to him, looked him square in the eye and said, keep the commandments. Well, the rich man said, well, I've already done that from my youth up. And you know, I think at that very moment, at that very moment, he realized, well, keeping the commandments then is not a way to get to heaven because if it were, I wouldn't even be asking this question. I've already kept the commandments, he thought, and I don't feel like I'm on my way to heaven. So this is why he came to Jesus in the first place. Now he's starting to get the picture. Now Jesus hits him with another question right up front. And he says, okay, here's what you need to do to be saved. And you wouldn't expect Jesus to say this at all. If you come to me and you say, Brother Smith, how do I get saved? And I said to you, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. You wouldn't believe that was right, but that's exactly what Jesus told him. And why did Jesus say that to him? Because he hit him at the right, at the very point that was his trouble. He hit him at the heart of the problem. And of course, the heart of the problem is the heart. His heart said, I love my riches more than I love God, and I'm unwilling to be totally surrendered to the Lord. So I'm not going to give up my riches. Jesus knew exactly what his need was. Well, this is what happens when the call of Christ comes. You begin to understand those things. You see that differently. You didn't have this before. Now, it's interesting that the way that Paul puts this, because he says, if so be that ye have heard him. Now, what does he mean by that, that you've heard Christ? Not one single one of these people had ever met Christ. Ephesians was written 30 years after Jesus died. Jesus lived in Palestine. They lived in Asia Minor. They'd never heard even one single spoken word of Christ. And yet Paul says, If so be that ye have heard him. Well, how are they going to hear him? Well, there's only one way they can hear. That's through the call of the gospel. Jesus spoke to them through the gospel call. Ah, but we're not finished yet because Paul goes on and he says, they learned him in verse number 20 and it says they were taught by him in verse number 21. Now we're getting to see something here. That shows us that the gospel call was much different in these people who believed than in those other Gentiles who didn't believe. There's something different in the way that they heard this call. Now the hearing was a lot different. Now, and it's a lot different than people who sit in pews by the hundreds and they hear the gospel message being preached and some people walk out of the church and they never think another thing about it. They never trust Christ. And yet there are some who are in that, in that pew and they're listening to the preacher preach and now they trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. What's the difference in those two people? Well, the difference is the call. The difference is a call that penetrates the heart of this person and this person who is dull of hearing, who did not understand, who can't receive the gospel message. Now the call penetrates that evil heart and God changes him right then so that he can believe. Now this is what we call the effectual call of the gospel. And that's different from the general gospel call. Now the best example I can think of in scriptures is what we find when we read about Lydia. Lydia heard the message, but she heard it in a much different way than the other ladies that were there with her. 
Now, specifically about Lydia. Let's read what the Scripture says. Acts chapter 16, verse 13. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. Verse 14. And a certain woman named Lydia. You remember that message that Brother Heinrich preached from John chapter 5? And he said, a certain man. John chapter 5 begins, a certain man. Here we see a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God. Listen, heard us, next, next phrase, whose heart the Lord opened that she attended under the things which were spoken of Paul. So the effectual call of the gospel is when the Holy Spirit opens the heart. Now, what we have, the picture that we have in our mind of the heart is that here we have a door to our heart And the control of that door is in our hands. What we must do, and even there are songs that sing about it or or talk about it, what we must do is to swing open that door and let Jesus in. But here's the truth that the Scripture gives us. That door is so tightly shut and sealed that in a million years you could never open that door. That door is locked. You'd have a much better chance of getting through a steel door at San Quentin with your fingernails than you would to get through this door. There's only one person who has the key to the door, and that's Jesus. And when he decides that he's coming through, he's coming through. And it's not like Jesus is standing out there begging and pleading, Oh, please let me in. I want to come into your heart. Jesus doesn't beg and plead for anything. He's God. And when he gets ready to come in, he comes into your heart. That's salvation by God and not salvation by man. So Jesus is not begging and pleading like I'm powerless to do anything until you let me do something. What kind of a God is that? When he decides to come, he's coming. Now, do you see the picture that Paul paints? The other Gentiles, he says, are darkened. They have no understanding. They're alienated from God. They're in ignorance. There's blindness in their heart. But... Flip back a page in your Bible in Ephesians to chapter 1 for just a minute. And let's see where understanding actually comes from. Look at verse number 17, Ephesians chapter 1. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of his glory of the inheritance in the saints. Now, here's what preachers are saying. They're saying, yes, you can understand this. I'm going to preach the message, and you can understand this. And they preach, and they plead, and they act as if by persuasion that you're finally going to find out Christ. But Paul gives a different picture. He says, it's God who gives you the spirit of wisdom. It's God who opens the eyes of understanding. Now, do you see how specific this is? I have never opened the eyes of one single individual. Never once have I opened anybody's eyes. God does. God opens the eyes. You know, how clear could that be to us? Now, if you have a person who doesn't hear and believe when the gospel's being preached, although the message is given to him and he doesn't believe it, what does that mean? God has not opened the eyes of his understanding. Now, how could people preach that God is not specific and God is not intentional about whom he calls and justifies? If that's not the sense and it's not the context of the passage, please tell me what it is. Now, just recently, 
I heard someone say that people who believe like we do about election and predestination, we only have a few scriptures to use, and we take those scriptures out of context. Man, you let me sit down with one of those guys and go through Ephesians verse by verse like we've just done, and I'll show you the meaning and the context of it. But when the effectual call of the Spirit comes, that's when a man evaluates himself properly. That's when he sees, not by his own understanding, it comes from God. Now, secondly about this call, this call brings Holy Spirit conviction about God. Now, I think we've already, already fairly implied that, but when you see yourself properly, when you evaluate yourself properly, then you can also see God in the right way. You see, learning Christ means that you see how hopeless that you are, how impossible that your situation is without God. So the Holy Spirit teaches you about the righteousness and holiness of God. Now, here's what Paul says about God in 1 Timothy 6. He says, Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom God, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So God's dwelling in a light, folks, that's unapproachable. How can we know God and understand God? Well, there's only one way that we can, and that's through the person of Jesus Christ. This is why Christ came. He came so that we could see and understand God. Now, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, it says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Now, this is what happens. When you receive the call, that's when conviction comes. You see yourself correctly. You understand God differently. Now you know better. What you didn't know before, now you know. Now you can understand it because God has opened your eyes through the gospel. Now, folks, what I'm trying to show you tonight is God in salvation. I'm not trying to show you man's part of salvation and God's part of salvation like so many people believe. There is no such thing as man's part of salvation. Now, you let all the fundamentalists that you want talk about the synergism of salvation, and I'll tell you that I believe in monergistic salvation. John Hendricks describes monergism this way. He says monergism simply means that it is God who gives ears to hear and eyes to see. It is God alone who gives illumination and understanding of his word that we might believe. It is God who raises us from the dead, who circumcises the heart, unplugs our ears. It is God alone who can give us a new sense that we may at last have the moral capacity to behold his beauty and unsurpassed excellency. Thank the Lord for this. He opens the eyes of our understanding. And do you realize it? That if it wasn't this way, if it really wasn't the way that I'm telling you tonight, that salvation would be fatally, fatally inequitable. Now, let me explain that statement. We have a local preacher who said, Thank God you have the good sense to believe. Well, folks, if there's any other reason why a person would believe other than the Holy Spirit speaking specifically to that one individual, opening his eyes, opening his eyes to the gospel, specifically targeting that person for salvation. Do you realize how salvation would have to come? Salvation would be for those with superior reasoning. Salvation would be for people with higher education, smart people, enlightened people, the learned people. They would be the most advantaged when it comes to salvation. But you know the truth of the matter? 
anybody can be saved. Your, your, your senses never enter into this. God takes the ignorant and the illiterate, if he wants to, and he'll save them. Folks, shame on anybody that reduces salvation to man's good sense. Salvation is by monergism. God gives you ears to hear and eyes to see. But let's go on to the final point I want to cover tonight. We've covered the contrast of Christianity, the call of Christ. Now, thirdly, the certainty of commitment. Now, the difference between true Christianity and all other religions comes down to the final basis of belief. What is the final basis of belief? Well, all other religions are built on the teaching of certain principles. In other words, if you apply these principles to your life, that you'll have a different outcome, that things will be changed, and all other religions are based upon abstract principles. But that's not true with Christianity. Christianity appeals to concrete, evidentiary, real historical events. And what are those historical events? Well, God sent his son into the world. Jesus came into the world. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He kept all the laws of God perfectly. He went to the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for sins. He died. He was placed into a tomb. Three days later, he came out of that tomb. Forty days later, he ascended and went back into heaven. Now, here's how Paul put it in our text verses. But ye have not so learned Christ... If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. So you see, it's not the application of any principles that save me. It's not any abstract principle that saves me. It's Christ that saves me. It's the historical person of Christ. And my salvation is tied to the truth in Christ. And there's no, nothing but truth in him. And it's, you know, he's the only place that truth can be found. John said, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, have you ever thought, why, why does John write that, why, that, that way? Grace and truth came by Christ, although the law was given by Moses, grace and truth came by, came by Jesus Christ. Why does he say that? Well, the law as a principle could never save us. Now, Moses was a great leader, and he gave us the law. Buddha was a great teacher, and he gave some pretty good principles for people to live by. You could read about Confucius, and he can really give you some things to think about. And, and, and I don't mean to put Moses into the same category as Buddha and Confucius. But what I'm trying to tell you is that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ because the law was futile without grace and truth. It wouldn't mean anything to us unless it was for Jesus Christ, the truth in him. So how can we be certain of the commitment that we've made to Christ? Well, here it is. It produces something. It changes us. We see now we come all the way back to the beginning of the sermon now because now we see the contrast between us and the world. We're certain of this. We're certain of our salvation because it has has actually made a change. Now, this is why these people that, that, that say you don't have to repent of all your sins, a change is not necessary. You just say, I believe these things that I've told you to believe and you're all right. If no change is produced, there can't be any assurance of salvation because assurance comes from the fact that there is a change. Now, here's the thing. Here's your last statement tonight. Truth produces holiness. Now, if I have learned Christ, if I've heard him, if I've been taught by him, it will produce holiness. I'm not going to walk as other Gentiles walk. Now, if all of this is genuine, if all the things that I've said are true, if it's all genuine, I will be holy. 
And what does that holiness do? It gives us fellowship with God. What does the scripture say? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with God. And that's what it's all about. That's how you know that you're saved. Now, a person who's saved, I can't explain that to you, what that feeling is like. There's no way that I could convey that to you. But when you get saved, you know it. And the reason that you know it is because a change has come about in your life. So here's what it's all about. It's about getting from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's about having those blinders removed so that you're no longer in the darkness. You walk in the light. You've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the light of his dear son, the kingdom of light. It produces something. Now, folks, don't let anybody ever fool you into thinking that people can be saved but not be changed. This is the very theme that Paul is talking about. What is it? You have learned Christ. You learn Christ. Now, praise God for that. Now you know better. You're not what you were before. Now, next week, we're going to come back to this, and Paul's going to show us what we do when we learn Christ. Folks, praise God for this. Praise him for salvation that's in the hands of God from first to the last. And deliver me, please, from preaching of co-op salvation. There is no such thing. Let us see God and God alone as the hope for our souls. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. I just ask you, Lord, that you might bless this word to the hearer. Help us to understand this better. And may we see, Lord, that we cannot look to ourselves. We can't base our faith in some decision that we've made. We base our faith in the fact that you have given faith. You've drawn us to you. You've made it come alive in our hearts. And we know it through the operation of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you have enabled us to make a decision. We just praise your name for that. Blessing this invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.